ultimately, I think the the most important performance variable for athletes is essentially what happens there is our survival system kicks into gear and goes, uh-oh, this could go horribly wrong. This could be one of those days where everything goes wrong. If you're expecting your players to be perfect or you expect yourself or your teammates to be perfect, you're always going to be frustrated. You're always going to be disappointed. Um, rugby is not a game of perfect. How do players at the top level in rugby do what they do? And what can young, ambitious players learn from them and their journeys to achieve their own dreams in the game? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international player, now mental performance coach, and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. Jack Birdwhistle is the mental performance coach at Harlequins and in the pod we chat about exploring your potential as a young player, balancing different aspects of your life to achieve your goals and also go through flaws in the rugby development pathway systems that as a young player you really need to hear. Jack talks about what it was like working at Connacht, he details the mental performance program at Harlequins and gives an insight into Danny Kerr and Joe Marler's mental game. In the pod, you will learn how to stay focused throughout a game and move on from mistakes. Also, how you improve your self-talk, how you can become more of a leader, how to visualize, and lots more. Please follow me on Instagram at offfieldrugby. I really appreciate those of you sharing the content on your stories. Please send the pod on some friends and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this episode. Those are ways you can say thanks for making this and those small things really mean more than you can imagine. So here's episode number 52 with Jack Bertwistle. Dealing with money can be very stressful and especially with everything that's happening in the world right now and stock markets crashing. If you're not an expert, it can be difficult to know what to do. Sparks Wealth is an Irish financial planner and they are experts when it comes to dealing with finances and helping guide you on what's best for your situation. You can book a free call with Will now at Sparks Wealth on their website, sparkswealth.ie. Recently, a family member of mine did just that and was so happy they did so. They said Will guided them through everything in a simple, easy to understand way, no jargon, and it was a brilliant experience. So that's sparkswealth.ie. So Jack, how did you um, get started in rugby? Did you play when you were younger? I did play. um, I started playing, I might have played one season of football and I absolutely hated it uh, when I was seven or something. I just didn't, didn't do it for me. Uh, so, yeah, maybe next year, mum and dad put me in rugby and I've played ever since. I was okay. Um, I don't think air professional was ever on the cards for me, but um, I absolutely love the game. Um, probably a bit of a, a rugby nerd growing up and then, um, yeah, getting into seniors sort of uh, as you, a lot of people do, you go to university, join the university club and it's more about the social side than the uh, – than the playing side and um there was a brief moment where i tried to take it seriously but uh 
at that stage. I think the opportunity passed me by and I just kept getting injured and injured and injured. But, um, you know, that's hope springs eternal sort of situation. There was this moment where you think, oh, maybe I can um, see how well I can, like, you know, that, I think for me, there was that level of maturity where I was like, oh, like maybe there's something in this idea of seeing what my very best looks like. Um, I probably didn't grasp that until I was like 24 or 25. And then, um, and then I didn't, then I wasn't able to stay healthy after that, which, you know, like no one's going to, no one's going to, you know, shed any tears over my rugby career. That's completely fine. I absolutely love the game and enjoyed playing with the mates and stuff. So that's what it was all about for me. Nice one. And was there any like moment or thing that happened that when you were 24, 25, that made you kind of switch your mind and kind of think that way for a bit? Um, it's a good question. I think, I, I think, like, honestly, I'd just put it down to sort of natural maturity. Um, I, you know, like a lot of young men. So I like went to an all, an all boys boarding school. So coming out of school, moving interstate to go to university, um, all of a sudden um, there's alcohol and there's women around. Um, and that was very distracting, um, you know, as it is for most young people. Um so I mean, at school I played. So I went, I went to a, a reasonably well-known rugby school back in Australia, where we had, you know, I think probably that my school probably produced more Wallabies than any other school. And um, so you know, I played uh, thirds in my final year there, which you know we had boys go on and play from the team I was in there, go on and play Super Rugby and stuff like that. So it wasn't a bad level. There was just so much depth there. Um, but I, I suppose because of that, I never saw myself as, as progressing to an elite level. Cause I was like, well, I could, I could see all these guys and where, how far ahead of, of me they were. And um, as a, as a 19 year old or an 18 year old playing school where rugby, I was playing second row at six foot four and probably 88 kilos. Um, and then playing, you know, under twenties uh, when I moved down to Canberra at university, again, playing, you know, second row, maybe at 92 or 93 kilos this time. Uh, and um, so there was a physical maturity element to it and, a, and then a personal maturity. So by the time I'm 23 24, I'm probably up closer to a, 100 kilos. The contact is no longer as punishing as it was, but I think I just sort of, as I alluded to, like coming out of school, you get to that, I was just so excited to, to do, to make friends, to be in these big, exciting social environments, to be, you know, I wouldn't say chasing women it definitely gives the wrong impression, but uh, the idea that that could that possibly, you know, being able to interact with women and stuff. So I was very much into the university social side of things and that, like, you know, I wasn't prepared to sacrifice, um, you know, that I was missing trainings on Thursdays when I had other things that I wanted to go and see and do. Um, I wasn't prepared to be, you know, getting in the gym and, you know, still going out on a Thursday night before a game on a fr- on a Saturday or whatever. So just that stuff, which a lot of, a lot of people do when they're playing club footy, but um, I, I always saw rugby as a, as a fun thing to do because I enjoyed the game. And then, yeah, there was a, just a switch where it was sort of like, well, what's the point in doing this if I'm not seeing how good I can be? And then, and it really, for me, that's, there was that moment where, it's a switch and it was not about, oh, I need to become, I need to, I want to see if I can play, you know, 50 first grade games or see if I can push 
into like the sphere of being in the mix for for trying to get picked up. Um, it was more like, like, isn't there something intrinsically good about trying to maximise your potential? And so that's something that's definitely that that I went through in my mid twenties. That's changed a lot of the way I, I think and see, and that's probably evolved again more beyond that to where I am now. But yeah, that's sort of my. Um, I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. Like I, I was not a um, an elite rugby prospect by any stretch. Like I was, an, I was a suitably serviceable club player. Um, would be the way I'd describe myself. Yeah. So I don't know if that's answered your question. No, it has. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, yeah, a lot of that resonates with me. I went to a boarding school as well, and then went to university, and yeah, a lot of distractions. But um, something that you said there, I find really interesting. Something that I've been thinking quite a bit about recently is that. If you're going to do anything, I think there's no point in not going all in. Mm. Like you said about the rugby, like you're dabbling and you're kind of like half-assing it and then half-assing and drinking and doing all these other things. And like you kind of came to that realization. It's like, well, here, like what's the point in me doing it if I'm not going to like give it a, a whack? And it's like, yeah, you say you weren't a lead prospect. You probably may never have played with the Wallabies, but it's like, you know, it's. I just think that, yeah, whatever you're going to do, may as well give it everything you've got. Yeah, and I think, um, I guess definitely, uh, yeah, giving it all you've got. I, I, so the reason I've hesitated there is when I reflect on my own journey, uh, I shifted from this sort of doing, like just going with the flow. It wasn't that I wasn't trying my best, but I wasn't interested in achieving my best. If that wasn't something that was on the top of my mind, I was just about yeah, having sure. fun and, and it was very... Um, immediate gratification like what do I want to do right now what's going to give me satisfaction and joy and pleasure in this moment and um I probably when I would say 27 or 28 I probably got very I I switched the other way you know I'm playing rugby at that point again still playing and I'm going to train I'm like why am I even going here like rugby's never going to take me anywhere like I'm I'm going to training I'm going to the gym I'm busting myself to play um you know, second grade, first, like second grade footy. What's the point in this? Like I'm committing 15 hours a week, 16 hours a week to this and it's, I'm never going to make a career out of it. And so I, I think I actually went too far and it was, it, it permeated, that sort of sentiment permeated through a lot of things in my life where I started to like basically look at everything as a binary of where is, is this moving me towards a goal? Mm. And if it wasn't, I then completely question why I'd even engage in it in the first place. So I sort of paired that back a little bit now to like, there is space for like simple pleasure mm. as opposed to like the need to progress. Uh, Cause I was not enjoying last season that I played rugby. I was not enjoying playing and training at all because I couldn't understand why I was doing it. And um, everything seemed to be a waste of time. And I was in a job where I wasn't sure if that's, well, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I was like, this isn't moving me where I want to go. I'm spending time on rugby when I should be focusing on building skill sets that are going to help me get the career I want to have. Like these spending time with my friends is time that's not spent improving. And then I was like feeling guilty and frustrated about, like I couldn't reconcile my feelings and thoughts around spending time with friends and family because it wasn't moving me anywhere. So there was probably an 18 month period where I got very disenfranchised. I wouldn't say I was, I wouldn't say I was depressed. I think that's, uh, you know, that, I, I try not to use that word unless there's a, a it's genuine. 
Um, but I definitely wasn't happy or fulfilled. So it was, there's, I think there's a caveat to it. Like you definitely, it's, it's definitely no, I think it's definitely noble to explore your potential and say, okay, well, if I'm going to do so, I might as well do it to the best of my ability. But then I think what I realized that has to be caveated with doesn't have to get you somewhere. Um, you can, you can just see how good you can become at a musical instrument without it needing to be something that's actually going to be a career or going to be something that you say is a, like an even a, you know, a party trick. You don't need to be able to pull out the guitar at a party. It doesn't have to be for a purpose. So I sort of, as I've got older, tried to find that balance a bit more, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just kind of roundabout, but like, yeah, what you're saying as well is like, and I think um, if you have kind of two or three goals, like, you know, you could have a professional uh, kind of a side goal, you know, just two or three goals that you're kind of like going after. And then there's different things that you might do to help you relax. You know, like you say, play the guitar, like you might want to be the best, whatever. And then you might play the guitar for half an hour in the evening to root like unwind and to chill out and the goal of playing the guitar is not to become a rock star it's to chill out so that when you're doing all this work to achieve your goal that you're you can concentrate more that you can unwind that kind of balance stuff you know so there's kind of like we were saying there's things in your life that um yeah that are just serve a, a purpose to unwind or to get a release from all the other stuff you're doing to achieve yeah absolutely yeah and it's it, it is a fine balance so to come back to your original point of you know give it 100 percent. i think there's a lot of kids especially um but uh, well when we talk sport as children because your physical peak is is limited right by the time you're in your 30s the chances of you reaching the best version of yourself physically is going to be challenging of course people still do it um but you know that I know because I worked in in sport primarily around club participation and stuff before I I moved over and started working in in mental performance, that age group of school leavers to sort of 22, 23, at least in Australia, is where we see a huge amount of people drop out of sport and only a small percentage of them come back. And, well, this is is into competitive club sport. There's, um, I'm sure you're probably familiar, There's there's a big movement towards uh, unstructured sport, so people going down to the park and playing pickup basketball, or or playing social touch or social netball with their mates. But going back to playing, you know, someone who played hockey at school, will they play hockey again competitively? If they drop out, it's uh, some will come back, but not many. But um, I think there's so many people who, because of the way the development systems are structured, if you're not in a pathway when you're 17 or 18 the message you receive is that this isn't for you. And I think that's really, especially in a game like rugby, it's a real shame because there's so much, there's so much physically that's going to change for you as a, well, male or female. I, I don't know enough about the differences between the two genders in their physical development, but you, you, it's observable for men that there are guys that, I mean, I experienced it myself. There are guys that, for, for the worse, you know, when you turn 23, all of a sudden you add 10 kilos and you can't get rid of it, but like it happens, your physical development happens at different stages. So I think, you know, it's a good message for any, anyone in the, like always exploring your potential. So just because you're playing, you know, fourth or fifth grade doesn't mean you can't push up to a high level. Um, And I think a lot of people just go, oh, well, there's no end point for me here like i this is where this is the type this i am i am a 
fifth grade rugby player at school. Therefore, I'll be fifth grade in club, and therefore, I'll be you know always be a social player. And um, I don't. I think so. That's the the counterbalance to what I just said. Is yes, give it, have a hundred percent at it, and see what comes of it without needing it to be something. If that makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, that's something that yeah I find absolutely wild as well. And fully agree that at 17 18 people kind of get told like you either have a chance of making it or you don't and then if you think about it between 17 and 23 like you know five six years there there's five or six years you know what i mean like and it's uh like the amount that can happen for a player over that period of time is like it's wild it's <clears throat> it's um it's insane and if you look at like, oh, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I know rugby better than I know other sports just because that's where I've, I've worked. But the development pathways, um, like they're filled with great people, um, but they're just not fundamentally flawed is not the right idea, but there's so much gold that isn't picked up because so like the, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to look it up. But the, the majority of players in age grade teams are born in the first six months of that age grade period right yeah and there's just a physical development of someone in australia it's january to december someone born on the first of january is 360 days older than someone born on christmas day so like that makes a huge difference when you're only 15 years old it's seven percent of your life like it's not insignificant so the you know but these systems are great at picking up kids who are good now at 15 at 16 but how good are they at identifying the kids that have the skill set to be good when they're 22 or 23? And um, I think that that's an area that uh, all sport can probably work on. Um, and it's a shame because especially, and, you know, all sports are different, right? You look at, I don't know, think comes to the top of my head, figure skating, you've got 15, 16, 17-year-olds going to the Olympics and dominating. Gymnastics is the same. Uh, swimming you see young people coming through so some of that requires that early specialization but there are plenty of people who will won't physically develop into the athlete they need to be until they're in their mid early or mid 20s but they've been left out of the system and you hear the feel-good stories again i know australian rugby better like rory arnold didn't come into the brumby squad until he was 24 25 playing club rugby in the middle of the outback essentially um and uh i you know, he just wasn't in anyone's system. And it's those things are, are fluke stories where someone sees this enormous guy dominating in a club team and says, go, like, we need to move you down to, to the Brumbies and you're going to have a chance there. But there's so many people that get missed by those systems because they're not, they don't fit the mould at 15, 16, 17 years of age. And then uh, my experience at, at Connaught in Ireland, I showed that, again, those systems are similar. You come straight out of school straight into an academy and it's very difficult if you're not in an academy by the age of 21 or 22 there aren't many players that come through the AIL into the into the provincial teams um and that's it makes sense i understand the system is there's an efficiency to it but um it's sort of like if you miss it's the same in australia you miss that boat as an 18 year old if you're not in one of the squads then it's really difficult to get in yeah, no, I think it's um like in those systems, something that needs to be done is I've been through them and coaching in them now, actually, and uh, is to like emphasize to players that 
it's one coach's opinion. Like if you don't make a, an under 18 team, like even I'm, I'm coaching BCU 18 now, but like it's one coach's opinion. And that coach might, you might've had a bad day when that coach sees you and it's just one coach's opinion. But when you're that age, you can, you don't get picked in one team and all of a sudden you're like, I'm crap, I'm useless. And also you say, that's my chance gone because then you won't get into the next, um, the next rung or whatever. And um, well, something I do, I think AIL, like, there are teams at the top of the AIL and like guys like Matt Healy, Nia Diolokun, um, different guys have played there and then got breaks with Connacht with different clubs. But uh, yeah, I suppose you do need to be at the top end. But I, I suppose there are examples that you mentioned, Rory Arnold, Australian. But uh, there are examples like if you are playing club rugby, you can get picked up. And another guy, James Collin for Munster, I think he was 25. He was playing with Dolphin in the AIL, just scoring tries all around and Munster brought him in you know, got picked and it's uh, it's sometimes the gaps between, I think, different levels aren't as much as you think. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. And it's, um, uh, I mean, I guess the, well, I don't know the AL as, as well as I know the, the depth of of player. Like, like oh, when I was in Canberra, we were playing in the, it's called the John Ident Cup and the we've got Brumbies players playing and then you've got guys like who were so far down the, the order. Actually, I, this is a funny little roundabout. You probably know him. Um, Dara Fanning. Yeah, yeah. I played with him with the Eagles once. Yeah. My first game of first grade rugby in Canberra was against a team called the Tuggeron Vikings. And at the time I was, I don't know, maybe 20 or 21. And uh, Vikings were the, the, the team that everyone sort of assumed paid players when no one else did um, or, you know, employed them to be groundskeepers and they, you know, turned on the lawnmower on a Monday morning and then went into the pub or whatever and did their own thing. But uh, they, um, so he was playing for them at one, he came down to Canberra for a season, um, was playing for them. And I, so I played against him. We lost 75 nil or something, 75, seven or something against those guys. So it wasn't, it wasn't a pleasant experience. It was, um, but yeah, you can, it can, it, the, Sorry, what I was saying, the depth of players. Like you got some players that are going to play pro. We had Brumbies, we had a bloke like Dara, who was, uh, I think at that point, had fallen out of the one of the academies, perhaps, or maybe been at Connacht, come down, and then he came back over and went to Leinster. Yeah, I think what happened with him is he was playing AL with Mary's, and then he got a break with Connacht with the Eagles, like a trial, got a year or two contract, got released, went down to Australia where he played then, and then came back, was signed by Leinster, was playing Heineken Cup, like was starting winger for yeah. Leinster then, like, which is wild. <laughs> I mean, he has an Irish cap, does he not? Maybe. I don't think he can. Yeah, maybe. But, um, yeah. yeah, so, and and the, the shoot shield in Sydney is very strong, so that is quality place to play. Um, but I assume you've got to be carving it up. And uh, I know there's financial things, to, like there's academy, there's all sorts of, uh, bureaucracy and, and economic things that go with why the academy system functions the way it does. And it's not a criticism of the, the system necessarily. It's just a, sometimes a shame that you know there are guys out there that can do it. Um, but, um, yeah, anyway, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one because then there's, there's no, you know, there's no point, there's no system that's going to perfectly capture every individual. Mm. And you've got some blokes that will thrive in some environments that won't thrive in others. And so it's not just the, it's not just, oh, the system doesn't work. Well, this, there, 
there's no system that's going to perfectly take a play, like, you know, every player from where they are to where they need to be. It's the individual differences between the players matters a lot as well. 100%. That's a great point. And so with your own kind of career, you were working in uh, participation, like that kind of side of sport, and then you went and did a master's in mental performance. So when did you kind of decide that, you said that you had those 12 or 18 months, but when did you kind of decide that you that was what you wanted to go down, that was what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, so I did, I'd, I'd always had an interest in psychology. So I did an undergraduate degree in, um, so in Australia, you can do sort of dual track degrees. So I did a commerce degree uh, and majored in accounting because my parents told me that, you know, it never, me too. never... You'll never <laughs> find that useful. That's going to be a useful skill yeah. for the rest of you. I've never used it once. I don't remember anything I learned. Um, and then I did psychology and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the psychology. Like it always interested me, but I went to a university that was really academically geared. And basically they were, they, they funneled the undergrads into um, straight into PhD programs. And I was like, I definitely don't want to do a PhD. I don't want to be a clinical psych sitting down with people dealing with like, you know, as sounds selfish, but it wasn't, didn't interest me working on clinical issues, depression, mm. anxiety, um, family cycle, like none of that stuff interested me. I was interested in human behavior and I was interested in um, like why and how we are the way we are. But I, I, I didn't join the dots at this time, but I was, I think that my real fascination came through sport. It was like, why is this player doing this in this situation? Like, what is he thinking? You know, question, oh, what is he thinking? Um, so I, because I was always interested in sport, I got a job at my university um, working for the sport department there. And so, you know, started off doing the campus sport delivery and eventually moved into a role where I was the, um, the sport development manager on campus. And my role revolved mainly around um, supporting our uh, premier grade clubs. So the, the rugby, hockey, soccer, all the teams that participated in the first division of, of the local competition, as well as our varsity teams. So the, the teams that represented the university at national events and then our elite athlete program. So what we did to support our athletes. And so <clears throat> I was lucky I got to work with um, a bunch of athletes in 2017 and 2018 leading into, or the beginning of 2018, leading into the Commonwealth Games. So it was probably a dozen athletes that we had that were in the Com Games team for various badminton, fencing, athletics, um, swimming, water polo. We had it, we, and these athletes were basically supported by their organisation, but my role revolved around helping them manage the university side so working with lecturers to make sure they got extensions on assignments or got exams moved got into the right classes um, making sure they had access to facilities on campus so they could train they didn't need to um, you know leave and travel half an hour to get a gym session in to come back to a class and then leave again um, and so through building relationships with those athletes it just the one thing that we or me with a few of them ended up having the same discussion over and over with the mental challenges that they faced day to day. Like they knew tactically, technically, physically what they needed to be doing, but none of them had any mental um, skills or mental conditioning support. Um, and, you know, when you've got athletes in stuff like fencing, they're very self 
directed. Um, you know, they're not athletes that are out there that have big support teams. Um, they're self-funded. So I, I help them a lot with their funding and stuff like that, doing grant applications, so on and so forth. So when you're giving athletes money, like you tend, they tend to <laughs> appreciate, like, you know, for a guy who's self-funded his whole sport, you get his flights paid to an event. Um, it's easy to build a good rapport with someone when you can come through for them like that. So through having those discussions, I'm like, this is what I actually want to do. I want to be helping and supporting athletes to perform at their best through like, this is the, this is why I've been interested in psychology. Like why does an athlete relish one challenge and not, and shy away from another one? Um, so sort of through the beginning of 2018, I found a, a master's program at the university of Edinburgh in performance psychology. And I just said, you know what, like this is what I want to do. So um, was able to go off and, and do that. And uh, yeah, I got really lucky, you know, and this is one of the great things that sport does for you. Uh, my old boss who also coached me at the university happened to be um, a friend of, Andy Friend, who's the Connaught head coach. So he grew up in Canberra. He put me in touch. Friendy and I had a few phone conversations. I visited over there. We hit it off and he was like, well, look, do you want to come and, and um, start running this program for us? So that's sort of how I got into, <clears throat> excuse me, got into the, um, like I, I, I'm feeling incredibly blessed to be able to move straight into um, high performance sport um, straight out of, out of my master's program. And then it's sort of been, a constant learning and, and development process whilst delivering at the same time. Nice one. And when you spoke about those athletes that you started working with in the university and even that you're currently working with or whatever, but what was or is the most common challenge that players have or that you find players have? With um, that's a good question. Like, it probably... Ultimately, loads of generalize. It, it would be overthinking, right? Um, whether that be in performance or in the lead up to performance, it manifests in many different ways. Um, like using rugby as an example, the most common stuff that you'll hear is if I have an early mistake, I know I'm going to have a bad game. And so there's a belief system there. Uh, you make that mistake early, and all of a sudden, you start thinking about if I make another one, like what are the, what are the, circumstances in which I can make another mistake. Like if they kick another ball long, I have to catch it. Otherwise I'm getting dropped next week. Um, what are they going to write about me in the paper and all this sort of stuff? So there's, everyone has different triggers. You know, uh, a prop may not care so much if they drop the ball. They may not care so much if a winger sidesteps them. But if a winger runs over the top of a prop, all of a sudden they might, they might start to feel a fair bit more pressure about their performance and then the resulting consequence is a lot of overthinking um, usually negative worry doubt thinking about what can go wrong in the future fixating on what's gone wrong in the past um, and so that pretty much you know ultimately takes us away from connecting with the experience in the moment we're no longer focused on what's happening right now what's happening in this moment we're focused on what's gone wrong in the past and starting to try and predict what's going to go wrong in the future um, so that would be that would be the most common problem. Like that would be that as pretty much the root of it. Like the problem we're trying to solve is how do we help athletes stay focused, trust their abilities and skills in performance. 
and how how do you help like yeah it all rings like for sure resonates or yeah understand that fully um with the overthinking and with everything you've gone to there but how do you help people with that so i sort of see there being two linked but two main approaches like they're they're obviously linked so you've got you've got the suite of mental skills um self-talk visualization pre-performance routines pre-game planning journaling um you know knowing how to effectively review and preview performance um all that sort of stuff and those pretty much all that is is designed to help you train your attention to focus on the thing you want to focus on um so you know self-talk being an example um when you miss a tackle how do you want to respond to that you know what are you going to say to yourself so a good a good question would be you know if you if you pass a ball to a teammate and they drop it what would you say to a teammate Oh, yeah, you're like, yeah, of course. That's a that's one of the first ones that you you try and help young players with to encourage other person and stop giving out. And I think that's like the first step of maybe mental skills when you're working with young players, young teams. Is everyone has this uh, this just gut reaction, just 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 to give out, like, oh, Jack, come on, don't drop the ball. We need to score. Come on, Jack. Like, ah, oh, don't do that again. And that all of a sudden it just compounds what you're going through. And then all of a sudden you're fucked. Like you really are because yeah. everyone around you, you have no support from your teammates now. And it's, I think it's something that you have to help players train, like understand first, but then even like train, like a physical skill to like, whenever someone makes a mistake, we have to help them because they're a teammate, whatever, whatever. And it's, it's just so, oh, it's, it's crazy how much it happens, you know, like in young teams growing up, just everyone getting, and then all of a sudden I've been there in teams everyone's on each other everyone is getting on each other and it's just an awful place to be yeah and it's um there's two things like one you know you hear someone say like oh you've got to catch that like it's it offers zero value like the player who's dropped the ball knows yeah they're catching it like they're not it's not like you say it to them and they turn around and go wait hold on you i'm meant to catch that is that Sorry, I thought I was meant to be spiking it onto the floor. <laughs> so there's like, that is super unhelpful. But then you take that. And when you're the player that drops the ball, the way we talk to ourselves is 10 times more negative than, like, you know, someone might say, come on, mate, like, you've got to catch that. And you all of a sudden, you're like, you know, I don't know if we can swear on here, but we yeah, might. Of course. Yeah, you know, you say, fuck that shit. Like, I can't fucking play footy today. Like, I'm, like this, is, this is all, like, I'm, I'm shit. This day's getting away from me. So we want to work towards a place where, you know, teammate drops the ball, don't worry about it, mate. You're going to be fine. Get the next one. We want to be a good teammate to ourselves as well. And, you know, like anything, when it's not us, you know, another classic example is um, if you have a a friend who's in a bad relationship, all all of you outside the relationship can see this relationship is not going well. You guys are struggling. But the person inside it can't see it. They don't know what's wrong with it. They don't know why everyone, they can't understand why everyone's, and it's because their emotion, it's their ego, it's their emotional well-being that's at stake here. So when it's like, you know, as stupid as it sounds, when you get told you're not selected, that hurts way more than when a teammate gets told they're not selected because it's you that's being told. So when you make the mistake, all of a sudden you feel a lot more pressure. But 
what we want to do is start to be good teammates to ourselves. Very hard. Like we're always going to be more harsh on ourselves than our, our opponents, but I'm oh, sorry, our teammates. But if we're, if we know that the best thing to say to a teammate is don't worry about it. You've got this. I know, like I know what type of player you are. You, you can do this. Why wouldn't we say it to ourselves? It's objectively no less true. You know, if an example would be a fullback drops the first high ball that comes their way and they go, oh, no, this is going to be a, a miserable afternoon. And I was sitting with a young player um, a year or so ago, and he turned to me. He was one of the travelling reserves, and the, the fullback had missed maybe two, and he goes, oh, he's done now. He's, his head's wrecked. He's not going to catch another one for the rest of the day. And I said, why? And he's like, oh, well, he's missed those first two. And I was like, but – and this is another boy who played back three. And I was like, well, how many high balls did you catch this week? And he was like, oh, well, I try and do 20 after every session. We had three sessions, so 60 high balls. How many did you drop? He's like, I think I dropped one. And so I was like, so if you've attempted, you know, five minutes into a game over the course of the week, if you've attempted 62 and you've dropped three, why are you letting, why do you now think that you'll drop 100% of them when you've actually caught 98% of them? You know, so... And players can turn around and they can say, yeah, but in a game it's more important. Yeah, that's true. But your ability to do the skill hasn't changed just because you've dropped two. What about two weeks ago when you caught five out of five? So essentially what happens there is our survival system kicks into gear and goes, "Uh uh-oh, this could go horribly wrong. This could be one of those days where everything goes wrong. And our brain is essentially, you know, really, really simple terms telling us to leave the situation. It's, it's creating, a, it's painting a picture for us. It's so frightening that our only viable option is to leave. But of course, you can't just walk off the pitch, can you? Mm. So it's a completely unuseful response. It's great if you don't want to get eaten by, you know, a saber-toothed tiger back in when we were cavemen. It's fantastic to be super cautious when there are life and death situations happening. But in this rugby context, in the context of a dropped highball, your life is not in danger. So it's not, it's an, it's a maladaptive response. That's, that's uh, over exaggerated for the situation. So helping players recognize these thoughts are normal. I'm going to experience a feeling of worry when I make a mistake, but that's because my brain's trying to keep me safe. And my brain isn't interested in high performance. It's interested in safety. And I know what the truth about my performance is, which is that, most games, I, take, I catch five out of five. Most weeks, I, may, I take every catch during the week. I know what the truth about my skill set is. And two drop balls, like, you know, between us now, we know two drop balls doesn't change your ability to do it. So it's, uh, I don't know if that's really answered the question, but it's sort of a roundabout way of giving a, a sort of broad picture of what we're trying to achieve, what's actually going on, helping players get familiar with it, because it's going to happen. You can't avoid pressure. You can't avoid that negative thought that happens when you make a mistake because you care. Like you want to go out there and perform. So you make a mistake, you're going to have a negative response. What we want to do is build up the skills that quickly go, okay, that's fine. That happened. Now what? Rather than dweling and letting it spiral. Yeah, 100% fully agree. And it's something that's very interesting with when you say the fullback or whatever, someone making a mistake. And a part of that as well, and it ties in with the teammates thing is, you're going to be rejected from the tribe. Like you're, everyone else is going to say, you're that fucker who cost us the game. Everyone else, you know, and that's an awful place to be when 
you know, you can feel teammates blaming you for a mistake that costs a game and goalkeeper in soccer might be another very easy example. Um, and like that would all go through your head then. And something is so uh, with the, the teammates thing, one of my biggest challenges absolutely throughout my whole playing days has been other teammates giving out when a mistake is made. And often just feeling like, I'd be like, fuck off, like just shut up. You know what I mean? Like, cause you'd make a mistake and then teammates, come on, why did you even try that? What are you doing? You know? And then all of a sudden it's just like, I'm trying to play a game here, you know? And it's like, and I'm having yeah. a deal. I'm having a deal with you, you and you. And it's your, oh, it's the, the biggest impediment. Yeah. I have found has been people who are on my own team, like doing that, like, getting on me put it like trying to give out when you know it's like oh why'd you try that off why'd you try that kick why'd you do that and it's like just getting on you and then all of a sudden it's impossible to play it's really impossible yeah. to play when you have teammates giving out to you something that i think is so important like like you say be a good teammate like if you can be a good teammate and kind of create a culture where it's like love and connection and that we're in it together and that we're we're here and we're all we're all in this together regardless of what happens that kind of psychological safety that people can can play without fear and when you get that when you get to that position it's i think you're flying it yeah absolutely like it's it's absolutely essential like you can't you know that environment will never i don't think it'll ever foster long-term success like you know you hear of some environments where a coach comes in and they there's a rule with an iron fist and they do have some success and that might come down to um clarity over roles uh and mm. stuff like that 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 you know if that was missing it can make us it can make a significant improvement um and you know ruling with an iron fist as a coach doesn't necessarily mean you've got a fear-based culture yeah you know you don't have to like, like a coach can have high standards and still not instill fear in their players but yes if you're going out there and the your general mindset is around I don't want to stuff up. You're not going to be able to play the game properly. You're not going to allow your intuition. You know, when you ask players, when you're at your best, what is it? What, what is it like? And a lot of them will say stuff like, "I trust my instincts." Mm -hmm. And there's no way you're going to be able to trust your instincts if, at the back or the front of your mind, is this "don't stuff up" mentality, because either your teammates or your coaches are going to rip you apart. And I think the All Blacks. Maybe it's Dan Carter in one of his the high performance podcasts. He sort of talked about they they have none of that fear environment. It's mm. we want you to be going out making mistakes. The only time we'll ever hold you or ask you why you did something is if you don't take an opportunity. So it's your job to see opportunities. If the execution doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Like there isn't a hooker in the world that's hit every single throw. There isn't a fly half that's never kicked the ball out on the full. There isn't a player who's never missed a tackle. So mistakes are going to happen. Uh, if you're expecting your players to be perfect or you expect yourself or your teammates to be perfect, you're always going to be frustrated. You're always going to be disappointed. Um, rugby is not a game of perfect. But if you, you know, if you have a culture where it's, you know, we are going to create more opportunities than them and then that's going to lead to outcomes and our our goal is to be the best team at seeing and creating opportunities. So then the only time you're called into the coach's office is why didn't you, like, what did you not see? Like the backfield space was there for a 50-22. Why aren't you seeing that? It wasn't about you tried the 50-22 and uh, you put it out on the full. 
that was a bad kick. You know, actually, you saw the space, beautiful, well done. Execution wasn't there. Keep working on the kick, and then off you go. It'll, you'll you'll be better next time. So there's like very contrast in terms of what you're going to get out of your players in those two different environments. Yeah, hundred percent. That uh, that just sounds like the absolute dream. What you described there, that Dan Carter is saying, like that just um, space where you can just be the best version of you where you have the freedom to try and be the best version of you like without without any fear of repercussion yeah absolutely and that's you know they're all so blessed you know this is everything is in context right the all blacks are blessed with having supreme talent Mm. uh supreme depth so um yeah, it's easy to be the best version of yourself when your forward pack's constantly giving you front foot ball and when, you know, every bloke you pass to probably has the advantage in their one-on-one matchup. So, and when you're winning games and it's all working, you know, everyone feels great about, oh, you did that, you took that chance, it didn't work, we still won by 40 points, you know. So, there's you got to caveat all of that. But I do, it is obviously, there is something that they do there that works and it's a lot of, a lot of teams are building that culture now around that psychological safety, as you said, um, but around that, like, you know, be, be yourself, be authentic to who you are. Like, let's go out there and, and see how good we can be um, instead of, you know, these strict rules around like, you know, don't, you're not allowed to make a mistake in this area of the field because that's when teams, you know, score. Like, you know, if we don't exit properly, then, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you, you're given, you're pulled aside the next Monday. Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? What's like, this is why we lost. And the player walks out of that going, like, Often they walk out of it going, I don't really know what I did wrong. It was a simple, simply a, a poor kick, yeah. poor pass, poor clean out. And I'm already practicing all those skills. So that's another one that, you know, and I think I've been lucky both at, at Connor and at Quinns. I haven't seen any of this. So like, the coaches won't rip into a player for a skill execution error because yeah. you just, it just is what it is, right? The, the player is not, it's simply like, the player is simply not trying to screw up. Like they want just as much as the coach, they want the kick to go well, if not yeah. more. Yeah. You know? more. There's, no, there's no player out there that's like, I don't wish I had the perfect box kick and could exit to outside the 50 every single time. Like everyone wants that, but that's not, so that's not what's going on. What you do see though, is if a player is then not practicing the skill, they're not putting mm. in the work to develop it, then maybe you can have a conversation with the player and say, I don't mind the execution error is what I, oh, what, and the thing is players need to also understand that if the execution is not there, you're not going to get picked. Right. So it's simply, it's not, it's not good enough to put up your hand and say, well, coach, I've been practicing that. So I deserve selection. Well, no, you still got to go and execute it, but to be, you know, dragged over the coals for execution errors, you know, not really that productive, especially when the players are, I, you didn't give me a solution to fix that problem. Um, I'm already doing all the stuff we talked about. So, you know, a better thing for a coach to do is to say, I see you doing the work. I trust you to keep, to keep getting better. Uh, or until your execution's there, mate, I can't, I can't pick you again, but I see you doing the work and I know you'll get there. So little things like that. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's, um, yeah, I think it's just poor, it's poor coach. It, it is. And I've seen it so many times. It's like a two V one isn't executed and they give out to the person who doesn't execute the two V one. It's like, man, it's like, this is not rocket science. Like, do you actually think that he did not want to put that pass to hand? 
And when, and it's, it happens all the time when they don't look at like, what was the best option? You know, it's like, you can only ever criticize the option. It's like, yeah. what did you see here? Why did you go for the pass instead of taking on your own? Why didn't you put in a kick? What like, you can only ever talk about the option. Yeah, it's, and it just happens so much. Coaches talking about execution. It's like, and all they see is execution. If something works out, it's good. If something doesn't work out, yeah. it is bad. And labeling them like that. And it's just like, oh, it's just so frustrating. <laughs> and it's, I mean, that's, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. And there's like two things that, like one is, um, you, uh, the question you asked is the best question that I think the coaches can ask is what did you see there? Like, what was your experience in that moment? So, okay, the wrong execution was poor option was like, well, let's put the execution aside, took the wrong option. It's like sometimes the directive would be, you should have done this, but the best thing to do is to ask the player, what did you see? Why did you make that decision? Because they, so there's, um, uh, there's a there's a decision making theory, uh, naturalist decision making that's mostly used in sort of military uh, emergency services uh, has been developed around those systems. But basically, top of my head, about eighty percent of decision making errors are not based on they're not the wrong decision. They're the they're based on the wrong situational assessment. Mm. So what that means is that the person has made the the person's actually seen the seen the situation misunderstood it but then made the correct decision based on what they think the situation is so often the players actually like decision making is fine it's their situational awareness that's wrong so they're not understanding they're, they're walking on what they're going i might like well they understand what the coach says they hear it again but then they go straight back into that situation and they make the same wrong decision again because we're not addressing what are you seeing like, why are you making that decision? The player cognitively knows in situation A, I should do this. In situation B, I should do this. The problem is, is sometimes they are in situation A and they see situation B and the, the coach tells them, this is what you do here, this is what you do here. And they go, yep, sweet, got it. And they go and make the same mistake again. Um, so that presents a challenge. There's a question that coaches should be asking more. Why did you see that? Like what Get to the root of your decision-making process really interesting i hadn't didn't know about that with the army and like actually understanding the situation and something that uh like scanning is big in rugby but what does scanning mean i think what's what scanning means is assessing what the situation you're in and, and just understanding the yeah the situation that you're in a really good one is uh if you go on youtube and look at frank lampard scanning it's just like there's there's clips of him just like head on a swivel constantly so it's mm. like so I think that's what you're saying there, so that when the ball comes to him, he fully understands everything around him and the decision's already made and helps with that, uh, everything that you're saying there and rugby the same. And it, to take it a step further, so that, and this is getting really nerdy now, the, the skill then you've got that you want to be helping players develop is pattern recognition. So mm. um, if your players can, like, you know, I think the first guys that come to my head is, like Anton Dupont, Aaron Smith, halfbacks are constantly checking what's going on around them. And they they don't consciously see, they don't consciously go, you know, front rower, lock, back rower, I can attack here. But as they're approaching the ruck, they've got an awareness of where their first receiver is. They've got an awareness of where the forward pods are. But then they will just sort of absorb subconsciously what's in front of them. You know, they, they will, like, notice the player overfolding and the opportunity to come back. 
um, come back onto the short side or come back the other way, depending on which, which way you've come from. So you, you want to help players develop that pattern recognition. And fundamentally what that is, is like, so if you, if you showed anyone who knows anything about rugby, a picture of a scrum, they would, you could show it to them for less than a second. And then you say to them, how many people are on in that photograph? And they would tell you there's 16 people or actually probably 18 people if you include the halfbacks in that photograph. Like they would say straight away, well, that's a scrum, two halfbacks, 18 people. Whereas if you show that to someone who's never seen rugby before, they would say, I have no idea how many people are in that. So it's chunking of information. So because we have an intimate knowledge of the game, we have a database that says, I don't need to count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Mm. All I need to do is I know that that group of people together is a scrum and therefore the information is made. So we want to help players develop that information. Like what are the key bits of information that are going to help you recognize patterns? And then you can start making decisions before. Like we often say an athlete, like the, the best athletes can, can read the play, right? And that what they actually can read the play, what they see is they, okay, well, this is what's happening now. And I know that in, three seconds time when I have the ball, this player who's here will now actually be three metres to the right and I can manipulate that space. So they can predict what's going to happen next. And they don't always get it right because of course. It's, it's impossible to predict, but the best players are constantly able to have a pretty good gauge of what's going to happen next. And then they're making decisions before it even happens. Um, and so to bring it all back to the mental skills, if all you're thinking about is oh, I screwed up, I missed that last tackle, there's no way you're going to be able to have that information wash into your mind in a subconscious way. So, you know, not only are we trying to help the players, like not only let go of mistakes, like for them to reach their full potential, they need to be clear-minded. They need to be sort of, it's not empty-minded because they are thinking but it's it's almost subconscious. It's it's just it's just a, a constant awareness of the situation. It's just constantly bringing information, and the best players know where the most important information is. As I said, with um, was it Lampard scanning? The scanning is where is the vital information, and they're they're then able to pick that up and then make decisions based on that. Yeah, hundred percent, great point, sir. And it is. Um... It is, I think, absolutely subconscious because you don't have time in a match to to cognitively, rationally think and weigh up options. Like the opportunity's gone, and I think as coaches, uh, our job is to create those environments and training over and over again so that the player can build up that. Like in small sided games, is kind of in vogue and it's very good. And but then other things are kind of um, situational things you could do, like a three v two on the edge with a winger and uh, thirteen and a a flanker so you know those kind of things that you can keep seeing these pictures and keep kind of trying different things so that when it comes to a game you know you're you have to have your you know to get into the flow state you have to have your mind like that kind of switch not switched off because you are thinking but it's you're not you're just processing you're not you're not thinking like oh where if he goes there if i go here and if and if i run up you can't this you can't do that yeah and that's absolutely it's it's I don't, I don't know what the term is. It's not, it is subconscious, but it's a, it's very intentional. Like you're trained your brain to know where to look and then to very, very quickly withdraw the information, like discern between useful or important and not important information and then 
quickly build an accurate understanding of what the situation is and go from there. And it's, um, you know, when you see players and it might be like uh, the, the, the 15 folds around there's on a short side and just one word to the halfback and the halfback puts a little chip over the top mm. and it's a try. And it's like those two, you know, in that instance, like they've got a shared understanding of the situation. So then that's when you get to the next level, which is shared mental models, which is when two players from two different perspectives are now able to analyze the situation, come to the same conclusion and then know what to do. And yes, there's communication there, like, but one word and it might direct the halfback's attention to something quickly where they go, yes, that's on. And then they go and make the kick. And it's, um, and that's when you are starting to get, that's when you see those beautiful moments of team interplay where it's like, how did that just happen? Like everyone just knew where to be, what was going on. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the peak of, of team performance is those completely shared mental models, that completely shared understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And you said the word there, beautiful, but that's exactly what I was thinking. And um, and it's funny, two things on that. Firstly, uh, with the, you say one word, and for sure it's like minimal communication. It can also be a, a point or eyes. Yep. Like you can like look at someone and they know, or you can point yep. and they'll know. And um, and then the second thing is coaches, once again, um, bad coaching or whatever is, when you try and structure everything to the nth degree, you can't have that. There's no way to to plan that kind of stuff. It's impossible. You cannot, yeah. you cannot plan that. It's and and that's when the magic happens. Like you'd mentioned, Dupont, Aaron Smith, those guys. When you look at rugby highlights on YouTube, very unless it's a set piece play, like pretty much none of it's scripted, or you know, it's not system, or you know, it's it's like guys kind of just playing off the cuff, doing things and doing all of that and uh yeah uh, one thing uh, to choose your time but i just want to ask like what's your kind of schedule like in harlequins or like what's um your like day-to-day -day or weekly schedule like how how do you work or how does that go yeah so it's been it's been evolving so it's um this is one of the challenges one of the things that i've uh struggled is is probably the right word um so my first season at Conant was very different to my second season. And then I was lucky enough to pick up this role with, with Quinns midway through that second season. So shifted teams, joined mid-year. That was very different to what was happening in Conant. And then this coming season is going to be different again. So um, exactly how we integrate mental performance into high-performance environments, we're still figuring out. Um, you know, I've got some ideas around what I think a great program would look like. But then of course, you've got to make sure that it fits in with everyone else's schedule. You're introducing new time demands on the players. Um, and so you don't, if you do too much too early, then you probably don't get buy-in and lose interest. So it's sort of about identifying. So to answer the question in practical terms, my first season at, at Connor, I delivered a, um, 30 to 40 minute mental skills session once a week um, because of COVID and, and for it to be functional, you want doing 45 guys at once doesn't work. It becomes a lecture. So we broke it up into to four groups of 10 to 12. Um, and then it was more about um, like a group interaction, group discussion. Right? So we, so that would be, you know, one of my days would be a couple of hours of delivery around that. And then it's working with individual players on their development plan. So 
I can talk to a group about what visualization looks like, but you can't develop visualization without working one-on-one with the player because it's got to be unique to their experience. Obviously, positionally, there's no point having an outside center visualize, you know, winning a line out, right? Um, So it's got to be unique to their experience, but really unique to who they are as a person because they, they, you know, they'll all play in a certain style and certain way. So each player that I work with, so it's, we've got both at both clubs. I had a philosophy I borrowed from a mentor of mine, Aaron Walsh, who works with the chiefs in New Zealand, uh, feed the hungry. So Mm. with only one of me, it's not possible for me to work with 45 guys at once. I just don't, wouldn't have the time. So for the most part, I was working with players, about 12 players at a time. Um, and some of those guys I'd meet with twice a week. Some I'd meet with once a week. Some I'd meet with once a month. It was different depending on their needs. Um, most of the time it starts with a specific problem. I'd be like, I struggle with X. And you get into the meat and bones of that. But really what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop a really robust set of skills so that players can handle anything that's thrown at them because they will experience different challenges. Like every player, you know, if you find out you're not selected on a Tuesday morning and you've got to go do training half an hour later, you want to have the skill set to let you either process that very quickly or park it and deal with it later and still get a good training session in because the worst thing you can do is go and sulk and, you know, throw the toys out of the cotton training and then the coach just walks away from that going, well, I'm glad I didn't pick that guy. Yeah. Um, so that's usually, you know, there's all sorts of different challenges in being a pro athlete. So we... So those days, would, a lot of it would be, you know, when we're training, like I do like to try and be out there on the, on the pitch, whether it's um, when the players are doing their own skills, whether it's, you know, catching balls, holding pads. It's, I've, I've found it useful as advice I've gotten from other coaches to be, you know, in the trenches to an extent. Like, you know, you, you're not, I'm not in or operating any training sessions, but when there's a need for extra hands... So it's good to not to be involved and be part of the team. You know, if it's isolated to something that happens in a room away from everywhere else, then I think that you end up with players saying it's something that's not, it should be on pitch. Like the, the goal is everything we do is to take it out onto the pitch. I'm not a clinical psych. I'm not trying to solve, you know, issues from childhood. What I'm trying to do is help you get better on the pitch. So anything we discuss off pitch is ideally going to go straight into the next training session. You know, we want to be practicing this stuff. If you don't practice yourself talk and training, you're not going to use it in a game. Under pressure, you're going to go back to your old habits. So you need to be practicing this stuff in, in training. So some of it's, yeah, so it's very ad hoc. So I might meet with two players before training. The training day will start. There might be meetings and whatever. A few casual chats with players. After training, you might meet with another three players. And that sort of will happen day to day. And then there's obviously the main delivery day. Um what I'd like to see us do at Quinns this year is really embed it in the program more with a lot more team-based stuff. So, you know, really small things like once or twice a week doing a morning meditation session for three minutes, you know, not compulsory, but whichever players want to come and do it, coaches can come do it too. Um, doing some sort of uh, neuromotor training. Now I've been practicing this and I'm terrible at it. No one's going to see it on this. I won't, I won't. But like, you know, you've got some like, you know, things where you try and switch your, your fingers. fingers. I think it's like this. So the, the, the first three fingers and the last three fingers, and then you, you switch over and you, you 
over and over you do this and it's it takes a bit of you can find yourself in a rhythm but it can be really uncomfortable oh. in the beginning and there's little things you can do like that and so we can grab players 10 minutes come in do this for you know see if you can get into a flow for 30 seconds then you can go and so it's just sort of embedding the mental side of stuff into the program at bits and pieces along the way like um, doing a group visualization before a game for so five minutes of all right boys you're in the change room you can hear the crowd you're feeling excited you're feeling confident you've had a great week of training and then what you do like so just that as an example hopefully what you're doing is you're priming the brain the neurological pathways to be feeling confident excited in the change room before that big european game you sort of go we've been here before i've felt this experience before and i know how i want to respond which is with positivity with, with excitement with uh with enthusiasm so for me there's a long-winded answer that we're going to we've got an off-season program we're going to deliver so we're going to have weekly um sessions as a whole team together to sort of lay a foundation and say this is our mental performance foundations for the year right this is what this, this is the language we're using this is this is the goals we're trying to achieve so that we can all support each other in doing it and then after the preseason's done it'll shift into a skill development phase, which is like, here are the different skills you can be developing over the course of the year. And then I'll work with players one-on-one -on, -one on developing those skills. And then as the season goes, we'll have group sessions where it might be, you know, you look at um, like the tennis as an example. Um, so Alex Demonor, Australian player, um, went up two sets uh, to love in the fourth round and ended up losing in three sets simply having a conversation with, with the group of players. How would you want to be going into the fifth set there? You were up 2-0, you had a match point, you could have won the game, you could have ended it there. Now you've played another two hours of tennis, you've got another set to go. What do you reckon he's feeling? Do you think that's positive? Do you think that's helpful? What, do you, what would you like to be thinking instead? Like what's the way you want to approach that challenge? So using other sport examples, you can sort of disconnect from the personal side of it. If you use too much rugby, everyone will feel they'll go i don't want to be too honest about this because this is actually real to me whereas you go oh, i reckon in this situation i'd be shitting myself <clears throat> i'd be absolutely furious to be in the fifth set i'd be like what the hell am i doing here i should have already won the game it's all the match sorry so it's we've sort of got a core delivery which is our main principles and then there's the player development and then there's just sprinkling in um bits and pieces so that it's a five-minute session here, a 10-minute session there. So we're just actively connecting with the material and using it regularly so that it's not, you know, I think a lot of people think you can do a couple of lectures on it and then people, but it doesn't, that's not how it no. works. Like anyone who's been in any organization where you've had a time management, like a half-day professional development on time management, the irony, you walk out of that and go, that was such a waste of my time. You don't change any yeah. behaviors yeah. and now you're further behind your work than you were. So um yeah I don't, does that answer the question yeah 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 no 100 percent. and um yeah it's really interesting and it's a cool one what you mentioned with the feed the hungry and mm. that's so true and i think even like as a player like as play players want to help each other also in different you know maybe physical skills mental skills you know and you you see someone as a coach or a player, someone with potential that isn't living up to it and you want to help them, you want to help them, but they're not hungry. And, and that can be challenging. And, and maybe 
that, that was just great advice that you got because you know you could go into an environment and, and try help 45 people evenly and some people just aren't there in their development maturity understanding to to be there to appreciate that kind of stuff you know what i mean and um yeah another one i just found like once again kind of more as a player i suppose but uh it's epictetus said it don't talk about your philosophy embody it and it's you know the players like if you're a player who who's you know meditate who does breath or who, who does all of these things it's uh, go and talk and at somebody who's not hungry who doesn't want to hear from it it's not going to work and you're just going to get frustrated and angry and, and all that and but if you're living that way and you're getting results then then people see it and it's um yeah it's just i, I I was kind of thinking it could be a challenge, like say you in that kind of situation environment, like the way high performance sports, is like quick results. It's like, all right, you know, it's like, how can we get these results? And, and you can't just go in and I don't believe, but like just go in and shove it down and be like, all right, we're doing four sessions, 45 minutes each. Everyone's in. I'm going to throw all this at you because that defeats the purpose of, of it. Yeah. And it's, I often like to use the gym, as an analogy, but there's one main difference, which is if you don't want to be in the gym today, but you get under that squat bar and you do the reps, you will get the physical benefit of it. Mm. Like, assuming all things being equal, you're not the reason, if, if the reason you don't want to do it is because you're fatigued, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. But if you just don't like the gym, if you do it, you'll get stronger. Yeah. Whereas if you don't want to do this work, you're not going to get the benefit out of it. Mm. Um, there are guys that are, you know, we've got Danny Kerr who's, played 17 seasons. Like he has more to teach me about mental performance and mental skills than I can teach him. You know, we've got a guy like uh, Joe Marler who like basically wins the mental battle every time he's out there. Like he is very good at getting under his opponent's skin and keeping his own cool. He's very good at, you know, shaping other, like really changing up the way other people are performing mentally. Mm. Um, he's got more to teach me and he can teach his, um, his teammates. And so I really see my role more of as a, as a facilitator than anything else. Like it's, I don't have the barbells and the dumbbells, but you know, I can, what I can do is I can be like create that environment where the players can do the reps. And we want to get to a place where, as you said, you got the players helping and teaching each other where we've got the more experienced guys delivering that. Now they often don't know how much they know. So it's helping mm. them realize what they what they've got to give to the younger players or, or got to give to others but um and the other thing is like the gym you need to stick to a constant practice like that is the biggest challenge that mental performance coaches have is people expect to see transformational results immediately now i have worked with some players where one conversation has been all they've needed i don't think that's a lasting change but it can definitely be a way to help get out of a funk, right? If we've had a player that's had a poor performance, is really struggling, having one conversation can actually shift their mindset for that game. It won't probably won't have changed their high-performance mental skills repertoire to handle it if it happens again, but it's a start. But if you want to get good at this, it needs to be something that you practice day in and day out or at least week in and week out. The same way you're in the gym, you know, you want to grab that pen and paper and do some journaling. What, what were you thinking about in training today? Oh, actually, that thought that I had during that drill was really unhelpful. What would be a helpful alternative? Oh, okay, now I know how I want to respond in that situation. Building that awareness, building that intentionality is really important. Simply, 
Now, sitting and having conversations is a very, very powerful tool. Like it's one of the better like active coping tools you can use. But um, we want to build self-reliant athletes that don't that, that can manage this yeah. for themselves. So, um, you know, we there, there's a it's but it is a challenge because it's brand new to all this. Like a lot of athletes, it comes intuitively. Like they just get the mental side of the game. They're they're naturally more stoic, and they're just like yeah. Like I recognize that mistakes happen and I'm okay with that, but not everyone's like that. So we're trying to create that environment where this becomes, I'm going to commit half an hour, 40 minutes a week to preparing, to, to building a mental strength that's equal to my physical and technical and tactical. Um, and it doesn't need to be a lot. Like it's not, you know, I'm not going to, we're not going to look at asking players to spend three hours a week sitting down with pen and paper you know, doing all this stuff. It's like, where can we add five minutes here, 10 minutes there, make it engaging, make it enjoyable um, and uh, make it relevant. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, thanks so much for your time. I'll let you go now. We've got good go all evening, but uh, a quick, a quick win. I think there as well um, is meditating. Like I, I just, I think it's incredible. Like just from before I did to when I started like two, three years ago, it's, you know, when you say five minutes or three minutes or someone listening in and mental skills, it can, it can be overwhelming. You know, you can talk about so many different things and it's like, I'll just leave it. Um, but yeah, I just find and found that meditating just helps everything so much. So, you know, if you can start for one minute, two minutes a, a morning when you wake up and just build that habit, it's uh, it's incredible for performance. It, absolutely. Anyone, uh, you will never meet a person who's, developed a practice of meditation that's told you that it's not beneficial yeah and it does take time though like you're not going to meditate you might i have yeah no. you know, people meditate and go holy shit i feel so much better immediately and that will happen but if, like there are other times where you meditate and you'll be like that didn't do anything for me but if you stick at it for a month six weeks you will notice huge changes and it is uh, I mean, ultimately, I think the the most important performance variable for athletes is sleep. Like, if you don't have your sleep mm, right, then yeah. then like, I will work with a player who's got poor sleep. My ideally, I would like to work with them around their sleep hygiene habits so we can build a better sleep. Because it doesn't matter what the quality of your training is, what the quality of your mental skills is. If you're not getting the right sleep, you just you're just putting a massive ceiling on yourself. So that'd be the first one. But then, like yeah, as you said, meditation three to five minutes a day and it is low hanging fruit. Like you will there and there are ongoing health benefits. Like not only will you get better on the pitch, your overall health will maybe won't necessarily improve, but you'll give yourself way more longevity at your peak than you would have otherwise. So um, absolutely like, and there's headspace, there's calm. You can go on YouTube. Like there's absolutely no, like it is so accessible. You don't, it doesn't need to be, sitting in silence you can just go on youtube and go three minute meditation or three minute breathing exercises and you will have something that you can do and everyone has the capacity to do it a hundred percent um fully agree hey jack thanks so much for your time really really enjoyed the the chat no thank you so much mate i, I love talking uh mental performance and and rugby it's been very enjoyable cheers thanks mate Thanks for listening today, really appreciate you spending the time here. Jack talked about the mental performance program at Harlequins and if you'd like to have a chat about your rugby, where you want to go in the game, 
and developing a mental performance program for yourself to help you live up to your potential and be the best player that you can be then go to my instagram now at offfieldrugby click the link in my bio and book a free one-on-one strategy call with me we'll chat through everything put plans in place and after you will feel far more confident about what you're doing would you please do me a favor and open your phone now and leave a rating and a review for the pod wherever you're listening it really helps the algorithm helps other people find the pod and learn from the unreal guests that jump on and have a chat and also for this pod some of your friends when you click out of this pod now and before you do your next thing before you go into the next app or before you get back to work or whatever it is you're doing think of three things that you are really grateful to have in your life and they could be so simple I've found practicing gratitude just so, so powerful. And the more that I can remind myself to do during the day, the more the habit gets ingrained, the more I think the neural pathways get developed, but the more I'm uh, inclined to look at the glass half full versus half empty and think of remember all the things that I have and not worry about any of the many things I don't have. But um, yeah, I've just found this way of thinking to be incredible and I think there's somewhat of a direct correlation between how grateful you are and how happy you are. But anyway, thanks again for clicking in. Have a good one. Cheers.